0: Welcome to Relevant Risk from the Friar Price Risk Management Center of Excellence presenting conversations and analysis about risk and risk management for food and agriculture supply chain decision makers from farmers to consumers and everyone in between. This is Relevant Risk.
1: Hello this is John Anderson with Friar Price Risk Management Center of Excellence at the University of Arkansas here with another Relevant Risk podcast. And it's been a while since our last podcast. We kind of got caught in the uh, end of semester uh, time crunch. And. uh, summer activities, but we are back with a uh, another Relevant Risk episode, and I'm very excited today because we have a new face with us, a, a new voice, I guess, for the podcast. Trey Malone joined faculty of the Agricultural Economics and Agribusiness Department uh, in May. Is that right, Trey? That's right. So Trey comes to us uh, from Michigan State University, where he has been on faculty, uh, had been on faculty uh, for a while. Uh, prior to that uh, in graduate school at Oklahoma State. But Trey, I want to give you a chance to to give us a little bit of your background. Just tell us briefly about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I I have been saying that I left Michigan at the best time in Michigan to come to Arkansas, at the hottest time in Arkansas. So I I think I just like sweat while I sleep here. Uh, I'm still getting (laughs) used to it. But I'm not far from that far away. Um, I grew up kind of in the armpit of the panhandle and the Kansas border, um, high school in Kansas. I, did, I went to, did my undergraduate in Kansas City at a small Jesuit Catholic school. Uh, and then I, I did my master's and Ph.D. at Oklahoma State. Uh, most of that master's and Ph.D. was focused in on specialty crops, uh, more of the post-farmgate side of marketing. Uh, my dissertation was actually on the economics of craft beer. So I, I've published a bunch of papers on, on beer. Uh, I was the chair of the beer section for quite a while. Uh, if I wasn't sitting here right now, I'd be at the Beeronomics Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, so, so beer is my forte, uh, but, but it's my forte in the way that it can educate us and inform us on how agriculture in the United States has transformed itself in the last 50 years.
1: Right. So and I want to come to that because that's an important part of what we want to talk about. But uh, a little more on your background, you worked at Oklahoma State with Jason Lusk. That's right. And Jason is uh, it seems uh, somewhat oxymoronic to talk about a well-known ag economist. (laughs) But Jason is a very well-known ag economist for his work on consumer economics, among other things. Tell us a little bit a little bit about your work with Dr. Lusk.
2: Yeah, sure. So Jason and I are still really good friends, and, and uh, you know he's he's one of my longest-lasting co-authors. I guess uh, I started, I did my PhD with him after doing a master's on kind of economic impacts of local foods, uh, and in my PhD we we focused a lot on uh, developing better methodologies to collect data on consumers. Uh, from there, we've we've published all kinds of things. The last paper that we published was on resiliency in the U.S. food system, uh, especially how the egg market responded to COVID-19 disruptions, uh, wh- whether it be changes in regulatory structures uh, and also just the way that people choose the eggs that they eat. Uh, that that also changed pretty dramatically. So so Jason and I have, have really spent a lot of time on the consumer end of, of the value chain, uh, but but I think that we're we're looking forward to, to moving even deeper into the space that actually has some more relevance to, to the Arkansas side of of agricultural right. producers.
1: So I bring up Dr. Lusk's uh, work strategically here because I, I wanna get into that with you a little bit. And his, to me, and I full disclosure here, I was on faculty with Jason at Mississippi State back early in both of our careers and uh, one of the best colleagues I ever had and just a brilliant guy. And Jason, I think over the last 20 years, has been probably the top ag economist in developing this idea of the food system. A lot of us are, are, have been, and I would say I, in my career, have been fairly compartmentalized into the commodity sector of the market because that's that's where my work is. Those are the problems that uh, that I have been engaged with, but Jason did a lot to really Bring out this idea of let's evaluate what's going on along the entire value chain, and you use that word uh, that that term earlier, and I think that's a good, uh, that's a good way to think about what we do in agriculture, and your work with beer is a good demonstration of that, right? Beer is a good example of an ag related product that has a very sophisticated and, and well developed uh, chain for creating value that ultimately resides with the final consumer. And you've done a lot of work in that area. Uh, what I'm curious about today, and uh, as we think about this from a, a risk management perspective, how are the, the challenges, how are the risks different for a decision maker? When you think about moving from that commodity production space into this, these, this, this downstream value chain, how are the risks different and how are the challenges of managing that risk different?
2: Yeah, so there are a lot of differences. Um, right. You know, my, I always start with, with thinking about my granddad uh, because he he's one of these old school producers. He likes people, but he doesn't want to interact with them every day uh, except for his buddies at the co-op. Wheat, wheat farmer
1: uh, primarily? Yeah, Is wheat
2: and, and beef cows, okay. uh, dual purpose out in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Uh, you know, he he gets most of his information from the co-op. When he's marketing, it's more about this pricing structure and and trying to hedge risk with prices. Uh, But those prices actually convey all kinds of information, right? And what's nice is that as a row crop guy, you don't really have to think about what information is embedded in that price. You just get a price. Uh, Where the the specialty crop producer or somebody that's looking at, at something that's more in the value chain has to think about what the long-term proposition is for that market, I think, a little bit differently. Um, so so let's talk about beer. Uh, the the uh, number of breweries in the United States in the 1980s was less than 100. Uh, that's, they all made basically the exact same beer, Uh, yeah, I get that Bud and Coors tastes a little bit different supposedly, but, but actually if you do the blind taste test, they don't. Um, (laughs) but, but since the 1980s on, we saw this explosion. This proliferation of options at the grocery store and at the liquor store. So we we now have over eight thousand, maybe nine thousand breweries in the United States. Oh well, wow. each of those breweries is making probably ten different beers. So you go from having eighty breweries that were making more or less one beer to eight thousand breweries that are making ten beers.
1: So that's a that's an immense amount of product differentiation. Unbelievable. That's going on with consumers, and particularly if you put that in the context that I started with of commodity markets That's where, right. you know, when you talk about wheat, you do have some different varieties of wheat. You know, you got your spring wheat and your winter wheat and your durums, and you've got different grades within those. But what are you talking? Maybe eight or 10 distinctions if you're pretty generous and they're fairly fine distinctions, but you're talking about thousands of points of differentiation That's in, right. in the product market.
2: and And it gets even more complicated when you think about the difference between annual and perennial crops. So, uh, we worked a lot with hops up in Michigan where you have to not only decide you're gonna play in this, this uh, value added differentiated product space, but you have to predict years in advance what those consumers are actually gonna want. Uh, so, 10, 15 years ago, the, the workhorse hop of craft beer was or is Cascade to this day. So, 10 years ago, if you could grow Cascade, you're probably gonna be in a good spot. Well, that's not really how it works now if you're a small producer. Uh, you have to develop a new cultivar. You have to think about this, this more differentiated space. And if you miss, well, that's three years before you actually find out that you missed and you just sunk an investment that was probably a 10, 15 year investment uh, that, that is a miss. Uh, and, wow. you know, the, so right now, I don't know, I haven't checked the, the markets lately on Cascade, but the last I checked, you could buy Cascade for less than a dollar a pound. Where had you grown something else, had you picked Chinook, maybe you could probably, I don't know, get five or six dollars a pound easy. Uh, and, and so it's a completely different ball game when you have to make those predictions years and years in advance in a consumer pull marketplace as opposed to a producer pull push.
1: So that's an interesting concept to me. You're talking about the hops market, which I think, you know, it's, it's in, in, with my background as a commodity market analyst, I would approach the hops market as a commodity market. You've got a raw agricultural product there that's a long way from being a final end product, or consumer product, uh, but it's significantly affected by this differentiation that's going on in that end product market.
2: So in the supply chain literature, they, they talk about something called bullwhip effects. Uh, so what that means is is some minor change at the consumer level can lead to these increasingly large ripple effects down the supply chain. Uh, so, So if we're talking about hops, if all of a sudden people decide that they want craft beer, well, the hop market will get some type of an information signal, but they probably are going to overshoot the demand for that cascade hop. Uh, and and the length of feedback uh, within that hot market takes so long to to regenerate some type of information for the producer that they they could be shot in the water uh, without even realizing it.
1: So you're describing a situation where what looked like at the consumer level very minor changes in 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 behavior, for instance, can result in massive. Uh, risk return differences at the producer level in an environment where there really aren't many tools for dealing with that risk. Is that a fair assessment? That's right. Situ- assessment?
2: And, and when we're talking about tools, I mean, if you look at the way that, that farm bill policies and everybody else deal with specialty crops, I mean, they're special. So, so right. there are a lot more nuances to how, uh, you know, these things can be, can be uh, insured uh, or not. Right. Uh, how, how weather affects your harvest. Uh, how your storage costs change—all of these things are, are fundamentally different in each specialty crop marketplace. Yeah, uh, and I think beer is a good example, but but COVID is even better of an example of, of exactly how that stuff works its way through a supply chain uh, that is is very unique uh, from from what I grew up with in the kind of beef, corn, wheat, soybeans, right. cotton—the
1: the <laughs> sort of macro commodity world. That's right. Yeah. And again, that's where I've spent most of my career, and the most comfortable. But I recognize the differences. And if we could abstract a little bit in in terms of what you're talking about from from hops, if you think about the specialty crop world, uh, and I don't like that term, but it's the term we've got that I think communicates pretty well the kind of crops we're talking about. Generally, smaller acreage, a lot of direct to consumer influence in in those markets. Uh, risk also means opportunity. So are there ways to turn this if you're especially crop producer let's say you're a, a, a smaller scale uh, fresh produce market producer in Arkansas, how do you capitalize on on that risk environment to, uh, to to turn that into an opportunity? are there are there principles that you could that you could lay out there?
2: Well absolutely uh, I, I think the the first principle though, and this is true for any agricultural producer, is to make sure that you completely and holistically understand your cost of production uh, because pricing is going to be a challenge. Uh, right. Understanding exactly how much you can you can actually uh, earn on any type of produce that you sell is going to be more difficult, I think, because you don't have uh, some market that you can look at aggregated prices from. Right. Your odds are if you're a small-scale producer, uh, let's say you're growing apples, how are you going to price your product? Well, maybe you have to just go to Walmart and see what Walmart's charging, and then based off of that, you, you make some choice. Uh, it's at it's least just as, not as thick. At,
1: at least as a benchmark. As maybe. a
2: benchmark, maybe. But you need to understand where your cost of production is to decide whether or not that Walmart number is actually going to you know bankrupt you in the long term. So <laughs> right. So you need to understand that
1: before anything else. That's great. Farm Management 101. That's right. Know what you've got to have to live.
2: The the second thing that you really have to think harder about is how you're actually going to connect to your customer. Uh, you know, you can't just drop these things off. One, one of the issues that, that you'll see in, in some of the smaller scale production, especially from somebody that, that maybe wants to pivot from, uh, you know, commodity, commercial ag into some of this more localized stuff, is they think they can just harvest, put it in a trash bag and drop it off somewhere. Uh, in the case of hops, maybe you just drop it off at the brewery, and somehow the brewer is going to buy it. Um, and that's a very that's, not how
1: this works. that's 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 very much an attitude that is carried over from the the large commodity world, right. where there is always a ready market for those things. You can always haul cattle to the local auction. You can always take grain to the elevator. Pretty pretty much always. That's not necessarily the case in when you when you're in the the smaller crop world.
2: Exactly, uh, and and there's more of a relationship. Uh, component to this that, that is very much risk management. If you have a relationship with a person you're selling to, you can swing and miss every once in a while in terms of consistency, and they still have that relationship, and they're going to be willing to come back to you. Uh, that relationship is is very different in the commodity commercial ag world. Uh, you know, if 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 you swing and miss uh, in hops, so long as that brewer has been buying from you for a while. They trust that you're going to come back to them with a better product next time, but if if this is a, a first go round with that brewer and you miss in terms of consistency or you don't deliver the promise that you you laid out in terms of the contract that you wrote, well, you're done. Uh, and and those brewers talk, and you're probably not going to be able to find many other people to take you on. Uh, so so it's more it's it's kind of like how we think about input sellers selling into the. Uh, into the ag world, where right. you know if if Chad starts messing you around on farm, well, you're going to tell your friends not to buy from Chad anymore. Whatever right. it is, their seed or whatever. Uh, in ag, you are the input guy, uh, and so you have to think about yourself in terms of developing those relationships.
1: That's a great analogy. I hadn't thought about it that way. You mentioned connecting with consumers uh, in, in this kind of marketing in this kind of this kind of food system. That, that process of connecting with consumers is something that's changed dramatically in the last 15 years, certainly, even within the last two or three, probably. Could you talk a little bit about how that process has changed and, and how is the continued evolution of technology changing that? What's on the horizon there? I'll ask you to speculate a little bit maybe. Well mm. everybody likes when economists forecast. Yeah, so sure. where's where that headed? Because it has changed a lot in a sh- short time. Well, let's
2: let's think about where it started. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, every year I got a, a red delicious apple in my stocking. Uh, because <laughs>
1: I got an orange in mine. Oh, uh, Okay,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, because you know w- where I grew up, it was kind of a big deal for fresh my parents to winter. get fresh fruit in the middle of winter. Uh, I've, I, I gotta, back I've at got. It,
1: I've got to interrupt you on this because yeah. I have every Christmas tried to explain to my kids why fresh fruit is a traditional christmas gift yeah. in a lot of places because you know we got an orange in the stocking an orange how lame is that think about for most of human history right. how remarkable seeing an orange in the middle of winter would be yeah and then we have an hour-long lesson on ag markets and marketing which is why my kids love ag economists anyway that's why they go they love ahead. Christmas too, exactly sure. that's
2: what we all love about christmas uh but, but, I mean, it's absolutely true. You know, we take this for granted now. Uh, you know, I, one thing that I like to do in my intro classes is, is I'll bring a red delicious apple and I'll, I'll ask who likes apples and I'll just give them the apple and say, all right, you know, you can eat it if you want. And they'll take a bite and then I'll start asking questions like, where was that apple grown? Do you have any idea who picked it? No. Do you have any idea where it came from? Who shipped it? No, you just know that I gave you an apple and you trust this apple that you randomly received from some professor <laughs> to eat it as we sit here. <laughs> how crazy is that? You know, yeah. that, that that is just a remarkable food system. Uh, and I, I don't know that, that we appreciate it enough. Uh, but I also don't know that we realize how much it's changed. Uh, you know, in the 1980s, we'll go back there. The average grocery store had about 7,500 unique options. The average grocery store before COVID-19 had about 45,000 unique SKUs. Uh, So so we've seen this this explosion in options. And I think Apple tells a good story. Red Delicious now is not really what you like to eat. (laughs) You know, like people are going to be looking for Honeycrisp. They're going to be looking for uh, the new Cosmic Crisp apple. Uh, it's, It's a different thing now where you have a producer a consumer pull versus a producer push model. And so what that means is you need to understand what those consumers are really pulling. Regardless of how you feel about organic, if that's what the premium tells you that you can make more money on, well, maybe that's something that's worth considering.
1: So consumer pull versus producer push is that the demand at the consumer level is dictating what people are going to grow and and I would expand on that and say maybe how they're going to grow it versus a model where producers grow what they what they can or what they want to and that dictates Dictates, so to speak, what consumers have available to buy. Yeah, and you're exactly. saying we've switched from one model to another. Now consumers are really in charge of what's in that present in the marketplace and by extension in our production systems.
2: And I think back in apples, uh, Honeycrisp is a good example. Everybody right. likes a Honeycrisp. It's not a super easy thing to grow. Right. Uh, and, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> What matters is, but it's a is very that you high, can
1: high premium product. That's or at least right. it certainly was when it was a new variety. That's
2: right. And it's still. I mean, if you go to the grocery store, that's going to be probably the most expensive apple on the shelf. Uh, and there are obviously demand explanations for that, but there are also supply explanations for why it's right. so high. Uh, but but this is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and and that world is even more complicated. I think for a specialty crop perennial grower who has to make these predictions. Uh, Well, chestnuts. I worked with chestnuts for a while. You know, most Americans have never even eaten a chestnut. I don't know if you have. I don't think I have. I hadn't. I don't even know if I'd seen one before I started working with the growers. Uh, But you have to predict 20, 30 years out in terms of why you think that chestnut orchard is going to have some type of commercial value. Uh, And that's hard.
1: Not all that dissimilar from somebody making a decision of what pecan variety tree to plant. Exactly.
2: That's right. Uh, chestnut is a little bit more difficult because you even have less data. Uh, you have the chestnut sure. blight that wiped out all chestnut production in the United States for about 100 years. Uh, so this is like a brand new thing to to the world of, of foodies. Uh, but And we don't really know what that looks like 30 years from now. At least we understand that pecans are, are in demand at some level. Right. And there's some data to tell you Good what point. type of market you need to, to consider.
1: Good point. I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I I think pecans are a great example. Though I, I think yeah. you know we, we live in 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 the specialty crop world where you have to be even more cognizant of what the forecasts are telling you about the future of that demand, yeah. Uh, and and you have to be more mindful of how you're going to get that product to market because you can't just drop it off.
1: And you're aiming at a you're aiming at a lot smaller target yeah. from a lot further distance. That's right. <laughs> uh, w- back to connecting with consumers. Could you say a little bit about uh, again? Technology is mediating so much of this relationship now between consumers and uh, and and producers. Big opportunities in that for for producers. Probably also some pitfalls and some difficulties. Could you talk a little bit about how this? Uh, uh, the use of technology, the communications technology, social media, uh, its applications into food systems. How is that changing marketing and, and, and what are the implications for risk there?
2: Well, there's, there's a lot of risk. The, the, the risk management is a challenge. Uh, you know, so I, I used to give a, a talk to Christmas tree growers. Uh, and one of the first things I'd do in that talk is I'd have them get out their phone and Google their Christmas tree farm. And a lot of times it, it, it wasn't uncommon. This would be one of the first times they've ever Googled that farm, uh, you know, because you got a lot of old school folks out there that, that just don't like social media or the Internet right. or anything else. But they get on, on Google and they'd find out that there's a five star ranking system to their farm. And uh, if somebody had a bad experience, that's going to live in perpetuity on the Internet. Right. Uh, and, and so it, it's very risky uh, when we think about what the social media world looks like. But what that also means is that you have to play in that world like you you can't be a small scale producer and not utilize some type of social media. And you also have to do it in a way that um, that equips your customers with their ability to tell your story for you. So I I think about like the karate kid, you know, everybody thinks they want to be the karate kid, Uh, you know, in, in my life story, I'm the karate kid. Um, and maybe I have some mentors that are my Mr. Miyagi. If you're going to use social media marketing uh, with your small business or your small agribusiness, you need to think about yourself more like Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> you have to be the one that is helping these people tell their own story. Uh, and and I think like that's one of those nuggets to me that, that I think has, has a lot of salience, yeah. that, that your goal is to have that person leave your farm or have that person eat your product and walk away with such a positive experience that they can go brag about the awesome peach that they had at your farm. Uh, and and that's different. That's very different than the business to business wholesale distribution channels right. that we typically think about.
1: That's a very different insight than I've heard before. I couldn't. I can't tell you how many times I have been in meetings in the last ten years and and heard farmers exhorted to tell your story. Tell mm-hmm. your story. And, and usually, and again, that's not always in a marketing context. And, and maybe it's more appropriate. But I like what you're saying about you're basically saying you need to induce your customers to tell your story for you. And that's, that's right. much more. Important. The,
2: I mean, yeah, the, the tell-your-story conversation and advocacy, right. I think, is dangerous uh, because it, it creates this platform where we we think that we know everything, and these customers are idiots, and nobody likes to be talked down to, right. um, and and so that's not a particularly strong marketing strategy. The better marketing strategy is to to realize that that every dollar you make comes from their pocket, and uh, every. You know, word of mouth is so important to small local production uh, because you're in a small contained space. You know, if I'm if I'm trying to sell local produce and I'm in northwest Arkansas, it really doesn't help me that much to have good word of mouth in Seattle. <laughs> but right. but it, if, if I do um, damage some relationship with an important person in northwest Arkansas, it's going to be a long time before I can regain that trust. Uh, so so it matters a lot more that, that you understand that you're in the service of them to tell their their family's story or or, you know, just their their foodie story, whatever it is. Yeah, uh, it, It's and different. You
1: can, you can get a shout out in their story and that can go a long way for you.
2: You know, and something else that I think is really interesting is. Like when we think about, um, you know, I think there's sometimes there's a little tension between the the commercial commodity agriculture world and the specialty crop world. Uh, And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, But one thing to keep maybe in mind in this advocacy space is that, you know, if if somebody goes to a choose and cut Christmas tree operation, odds are that's the only farm that person's ever going to walk on in their entire life. You know, the rest of us, we've been on farms a long time, um, but but this is the one opportunity the entire agriculture sector has to reach that person as they go cut down that choose and cut tree uh, yeah. or, you know, go to a you pick orchard. Uh, I get that there's a lot of cost associated with bringing those folks on. You go to risk. We could talk about insurance for days right. on those. Uh, but, but that is your opportunity as an industry to really reach across the aisle and and, and provide some experiential learning to the people who come. Uh, and that's, that's really powerful. And I think that it's underappreciated, uh, in, in, kind of all of commercial agriculture.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, Trey, I feel like we could talk for a couple hours about this sure. and we probably should come back and, uh, and do another podcast on this in fairly short order, but, uh, based on our time today, uh, I think, uh, we had best sign off with a promise to resume this conversation in another podcast in very short order. I hope I can uh, count on you for a commitment for another podcast.
2: 100%, so long as there's air conditioning in the building, because I'm not
1: doing this <laughs> yeah, outside. That's, uh, that's a, we will definitely have air conditioning in the building, or we will convene to another jurisdiction. But right, uh, good. Uh, with that, this is John Anderson, Director of the Friar Price Risk Management Center of Excellence, saying thank you for joining us for Relevant Risk.
0: Thanks for listening to the Relevant Risk podcast, a production of the Friar Price Risk Management Center of Excellence in the Department of Agricultural Economics and Agribusiness within the University of Arkansas System. The Friar Price Risk Management Center of Excellence carries out teaching activities through the Dale Bumpers College of Agricultural, Food, and Life Sciences at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, and research and extension activities through the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Visit friar-risk-center.uada.edu for more information. Thanks for listening.